expressed on this podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of my fabulous sponsors or advertisers. Any content provided by our bloggers or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. This disclaimer was provided by DisclaimerTemplate.com. Hello, my lovely loyal listeners. It's just Miss Rose and you. Today is Sunday. Uh, you know what, y'all? I don't know what today is. Oh, it's Sunday, the last Sunday in November of 2022, which we know what that means. We're rapidly approaching the end of the year. <laughs> yes, you guys, you could tell it's early because I'm being extra quiet because it's still quiet time in the building. But I'm going to get this episode of Just Miss Rose and you out of the way early in the day so I can run amok the rest of the day. <laughs> Anyway, after this brief pause for the cause, we'll be right back. Now, did I tell you I love you for listening? And did I thank you for your time spending it with me, listening to me going on and on about whatever I've been talking about? I appreciate you. We'll be right back. The Macmillan Dictionary. People who tell people what to do. Disciplinarian. Noun. Someone who thinks that people should obey rules and punishes people who do not. Autocrat. Noun. Someone who tells other people what to do without caring what they think. Dictator, noun, someone who tells people what to do and refuses to listen to their opinions. Tyrant, noun, someone in a position of power who behaves in a cruel and unfair way. Nag, noun, informal. Someone who keeps asking or telling you to do something in a way that annoys you. Control freak. Noun. Informal. Someone who wants to control every aspect of a situation and will not allow other people to share in making decisions. Taskmaster. Noun. Someone who makes people work very hard. Big Brother, noun. A person or organization that watches people all the time and tries to control everything they say or do. Gatekeeper, noun. Someone who makes decisions about which people can use something or see something or see someone. Marionette, noun. Oh, excuse me. Martinette, noun. Formal, someone who is very strict. More synonyms for people who tell people what to do.
Okay, battleaxe. Noun, an insulting word for an unpleasant woman who tells people what to do in a very determined and slightly frightening way. (laughs) Bruiser. Noun, informal. Someone who argues with a lot of force, making other people feel rather afraid. Bully boy, noun, British informal, someone who uses threats or violence to get what they want. Fascist, noun, informal, someone who forces people to obey them and does not allow any opposition to what they do or say. Judge and jury phrase. Someone who makes all the decisions about something important, especially when other people think this is wrong. Moralist. Noun. Someone who has strong beliefs about what is right and wrong and tries to make other people behave according to them. Nazi. Noun. An insulting word for someone who likes to control people or someone who does not like people who are different from them. Poacher turned gamekeeper. Phrase. Someone who did not obey the law or authority in the past, but now makes other people obey it. Slave driver. Informal. Someone who makes other people work very hard. Okay. Macmillan Dictionary. Join Macmillan Dictionary on Twitter and Facebook for daily word facts, quizzes, and language news. And we'll be right back. All right, my lovely, loyal listeners, we are back and we are now on the website quizlady.com. And this quiz is titled, How Bossy Are You? (laughs) Question one of ten. It's Friday night and you're making plans with your friends. What role do you play? Uh, The leader? I come up with all the ideas. I offer ideas, but hear everyone out. I tell everyone what we're doing, and then we all do it. I usually let the others decide. I try to sway the decision in my favor. Um, I usually, I offer ideas, but hear everyone out, I'm going to say. Next question. Question two of ten. When you are a passenger in a car, do you have a tendency to backseat drive? Always. Sometimes if I feel they need guidance. Only when I think they're not paying attention. Never they're in control or no, only in my own head. And the question is, when you are a passenger in a car. Do you have a tendency to backseat drive? My answer is always. Next question. Question three of ten. Do you have a difficult time taking other people's advice? Yes. Depends on the situation or no. My answer is yes. <laughs> Next question. 
Question four. How would you, I mean, how would your friends describe you? Oh, that's a good one. Stubborn, bold, and opinionated. (laughs) Strong-willed, outspoken, and loyal. Confident, happy, and chatty. Quiet, sweet, and reserved. Optimistic and easygoing. I think my friends would probably describe me as stubborn, bold, and opinionated. Or they might say strong-willed, outspoken, and loyal, but stubborn, bold, and opinionated was my answer. Question five. At work or school, do you have trouble taking direction? Yes, no, if I'm tired. At work or school, yes, I have trouble. So next question. I do have trouble taking direction. I'm trying to find out if I'm bossy. Question six. One of your friends has a terrible sense of style. Do you tell her how to fix it? Yes, I tell her how she should dress and what she's doing wrong. I offer her help if she wants it. No, she is who she is. I point out nice outfits when we shop together. Well, my answer is no. She is who she is. Okay. My sister style is my sister style. Her sister style is wacky. It's her sister style. Who am I to judge? Oh, question number seven. How do you handle a troublesome situation? I take the lead and tell everyone what to do. I wait for instructions. I help out others and follow along. I form a team and work with others to fix the situation. Well, it depends on what you call a troublesome situation. What are we defining as trouble? I think I'm going to say in a troublesome situation, I help out others and follow along. Next question. Question eight. How tolerant are you of people who lead a different lifestyle? Uh, Very tolerant, somewhat tolerant, not tolerant at all. My answer is very tolerant because I give less than a wax patootie about anybody else's lifestyle. Even though they had a picture of a lady with something coming out of her nose. Anyway, number nine. What do you believe is your best personality trait? My decisiveness, my strong opinions, my adaptability, my loyalty to friends, my willingness to help others. And I would believe that my best personality trait is my adaptability or my loyalty to friends, but I'm going to put my adaptability. Next question. Question 10 of 10, the last question. If someone refused to take your advice, what would you do? Oh my goodness. Refuse to talk to them for weeks. Give them the cold shoulder. Secretly laugh when things don't work out for them. Move on and accept it. Well, I'm going with move on and accept it. And then now I'm going to hit the result button. Calculating your score. How bossy are you? (gasps) Control freak. You are a bit of a control freak. It can be a bit stressful when life is completely out of your control. But don't worry. We all hate the feeling of not being the captain of our own ship. But make sure to relax and let others take the lead every once in a while. (laughs) Okay, you guys, so I'm a control freak. Anyway, we'll be right back. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Let me do this properly. Thank you, quizlady.com, for your quiz, How Bossy Are You? And we'll be right back. (laughs) 
All right, my lovely loyal listeners, we are back and we are on the website healthline.com and this article is titled 12 Signs of a Controlling Personality. It was medically reviewed by Timothy J. Legg, PhD, PSYD, and it was written by Cindy Lamos on November 21st, 2019. Many of us picture the typical schoolyard bully when we think of a controlling person. We might imagine someone who aggressively commands others to do what they want. But there are many more subtle signs you may not be aware of. And this kind of behavior isn't only limited to romantic relationships. Controlling people show up in all areas of life co-workers, bosses, friends, family, and even strangers. If you end up feeling small, embarrassed, or humiliated whenever you come in contact with them, it may be time to step back and reevaluate who you're spending time with. Here's a look at 12 signs that might suggest someone has a controlling personality. They make you think everything's your fault. You're blamed for minor things you have nothing to do with. If something goes wrong, they take on the role of victim and make you believe you're responsible for things beyond your control. You might hear, it's all your fault, or you shouldn't have done this come up in conversation. They criticize you all the time. A controlling person will attempt to undermine your confidence by making jabs at you in private or public. Here are a few examples of these methods. Exaggerating your flaws at work Always pointing out typos in an email, for example. Never acknowledge, never acknowledging when you do something right. Becoming irrationally angry if you don't answer your phone right away. Making mean jokes about you in front of others. Criticizing the way you dress or speak. They don't want you to see the people you love. Demanding your attention constantly and gradually isolating you from friends and family. I'm sorry, you guys. Demanding your attention constantly and gradually isolating you from friends and family is a method of control. They'll try to keep you all to themselves by complaining about how often you hang out with certain friends or family members. But it's not always this obvious. They may just glare at you when you're on the phone with loved ones or groan when you go to spend time with family. They keep score. They always expect something in return and make you feel guilty if you don't do what they want. They keep tabs on every little favor. If they paid for your dinner one night or let you crash at their place, for example, they'll bring it up repeatedly. They might also go out of their way to appear overly generous as a way to keep you indebted to them. They gaslight you. They underplay your experience by lying or accusing you of being overly sensitive. If you're upset about something they told you last week, they'll deny ever having said it and that it's all in your mind. You start second-guessing yourself all the time. Say you suspect a close friend of spreading false rumors about you. In response, they'll say you're imagining things or blame someone else, despite any evidence you might have. They create drama. If you had a big win at work, 
a controlling person might immediately change the subject and sulk about something that upset them that day to regain your attention. They may also sabotage your relationships with others as a way to have a leg up on you. For example, they might take screenshots of your private texts without permission and send them to others. They intimidate you. Someone exerting excessive control may constantly act superior and try to undermine your reputation. At work, this can look like a co-worker who always interrupts you during a meeting to state their own opinion, or a boss who disdainfully talks down to you in front of your peers. They may also make veiled threats in the way of jokes. If you don't turn this in by tomorrow, I'll start clearing out your desk. Just kidding. They are moody. They show drastic mood changes. One moment they're buying you gifts and lavishing you with praise, and the next they're acting like a bully. You end up feeling like you're walking on eggshells and never know where you stand with them. They also won't take responsibility or say sorry when they've upset you. They don't take no for an answer. A controlling person often won't accept healthy boundaries and will try to persuade or pressure you into changing your mind. If you've said you can't meet up this weekend, they'll show up uninvited to your house or they'll refuse to let you leave a party early even after saying you feel sick. Number seven. I mean, not number seven. They're unreasonably jealous. They always want your undivided attention and become upset when you make plans with others. They might speak badly or make negative comments about you and your friends. Interrogate you about where you go or who you see. Pout every time you plan to go out with someone new. They try to change you. They'll try to mold you to suit their own interests by pressuring you to make changes to your appearance or the way you dress. They may throw out your favorite pair of jeans when you're at work or refuse to leave the house unless you're dressed a certain way. They may show abusive behavior. If you find yourself relating to the above signs, Take a moment to be honest with yourself about the situation and assess whether these controlling patterns have become abusive. Ask yourself if the person is controlling your freedom and autonomy. Autonomy, y'all, sorry about that. Do you feel trapped, dominated, and fearful all the time? Are you concerned for your safety? All of these are clear red flags that the behavior has turned into coercive control, a form of domestic violence. Feeling free to be yourself is one of the most important aspects of your identity and self-worth. No romantic relationship, friendship, or working relationship should make you feel small or unsafe. Remember, no matter what they've told you, none of this is your fault and you deserve better than to live life this way. <clears throat> How to get help. If you'd like to learn more about recognizing these patterns of controlling behavior, or if you'd like to talk to a professional to get help if you're in an abusive relationship, check out the following resources. National Domestic Violence Hotline is available 24 hours a day and provides services by phone 800-799-7233 to help you assess your level of safety and guide you into taking next steps. Pathways to Safety International offers professional counseling and legal advocacy. 
and Break the Cycle helps young people ages 12 to 24 learn the signs of unhealthy relationships and provides the tools and resources to navigate safe options. About the author, Cindy Lamoff is a freelance journalist based in Guatemala. She writes often about the intersections between health, wellness, and the science of human behavior. She's written for The Atlantic, New York Magazine, Teen Vogue, Quartz, The Washington Post, and many more. Find her at cindylamoth.com. And we want to thank you, Ms. Lamoth, for your article on Healthline.com, 12 Signs of a Controlling Personality. And we will be right back with some more of today's hour-long episode of Just Miss Rose and you. Did I tell you I love you for listening? (laughs) I love you for listening. We will be right back. It's time for Dictionary Definition of the Day. Today's Dictionary Definition Word of the Day, brought to you by Oxford Languages, is autonomy. It's a noun, number one, the right or condition of self-government. Number two, in Katane moral philosophy, or Katian moral philosophy, the capacity of an agent to act in accordance with objective morality rather than under the influence of desires. Autonomy, and we'll be right back. my lovely loyal listeners we are back and we are now on the website psychologytoday.com and this article written by Susan Heitler PhD is titled can you spot 10 signs of a childish adult some people are developmentally delayed in the management of their emotions this was posted March 4th 2016, reviewed by Devin Fry. In my clinical practice, I primarily treat folks struggling with depression, anxiety, excessive anger, and marriage difficulties. Very often, an underlying issue is that, for one reason or another, the client never quite grew up. So many people reach chronological adulthood without having mastered the core elements of adult emotional functioning. How can you assess if an adult functions emotionally more like a child? As a therapist who works extensively with couples, I have learned that almost any client can look reasonably adult when I meet with him or her individually. By contrast, seeing the same client in a couples therapy session where spouses are interacting gives me vastly more data. Mistaken, immature, and pathological behaviors all become much more visible. I also see the extent to which each partner's actions are rude, hurtful, or even dangerously childish, or calm, respectful, and maturely adult. What is emotional age? A psychologist from Africa with whom I once spoke at an international psychology conference explained 
to me that in his country, it was common to assess people in terms of both physical age and emotional age. Physical age can be counted by number of birthdays. Excuse me. Physical age, especially with children, also tends to correlate with height, strength, and cognitive functioning. Psychological or emotional age, by contrast, becomes evident in emotional reactions and habits. For instance, adults can stay calm, whereas children tend to be quicker to anger. Adults exercise careful judgment before before talking, whereas children may impulsively blurt out tactless, hurtful words. If toddlers want a car or doll that another child is playing with, they are likely to reach out and take the item. Most preschoolers get mad or cry multiple times every day, even if they are basically well-nurtured and happy kids. The rules of adult play, like taking turns or not grabbing, have not yet begun to shape their behavior. Youngsters do not act in a consistently civil manner because they have not yet internalized the rules of civilized adults. Behaviors that are normal for children, however, look childish and rude when adults do them. Can you recognize childish adult behavior? One way to think about how young children differ from emotionally mature adults is to picture kids you know, maybe even your own children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and neighbors. How do these children differ from adults that you know and respect? Before reading my list of characteristics that I look for, you might want to jot down a list of traits that you noticed in your visualization. Please share with other readers in the comments below this article if you spotted some traits that I missed. 10 Signs of Emotional Childishness How many of the following signs of emotional immaturity does your list include? Number one, emotional escalations. Young children often cry, get mad, or outwardly appear petulant and pouting. Grown-ups seldom do. Number two, blaming. When things go wrong, young children look to blame someone. Grown-ups look to fix the problem. Number three, lies. When there's a situation that's uncomfortable, Young children might lie to stay out of trouble. Grown-ups deal with reality, reliably speaking the truth. Number four, name-calling. Children call each other names. Adults seek to understand issues. Adults do not make ad hominem attacks. That is, attacks on people's personal traits. Instead, they attack the problem. They do not respect others with mean labels. They do not disrespect others with mean labels. There is one exception. Sometimes adults, just like firefighters who battle forest fires, have to fight fire with fire. They may need to use fire to manage an angry child or an out-of-bounds adult in order to get them to cease their bad behavior. Number five, impulsivity or, as therapists say, poor impulse control. Children strike out impulsively when they feel hurt or mad. They speak recklessly or take impulsive action without pausing to think about the potential consequences. 
Similarly, instead of listening to others' viewpoints, they impulsively interrupt them. Adults pause, resisting the impulse to shoot out hurtful words or actions. They calm themselves. They then think through the problem, seeking more information and analyzing options. Again, some instances of acting on impulse can be hallmarks of mature behavior. Soldiers and police, for for instance, are trained to discriminate rapidly between harmless and dangerous situations so that they can respond quickly enough to protect potential victims of criminal actions. Number six, need to be the center of attention. Ever tried to have adult dinner conversations with a two-year-old at the table? Did attempts to launch a discussion with others at the table result in the child getting fussy? Number seven, bullying. A child who is physically larger than other children his age can walk up to another child who is playing with a toy he would like and simply take it. The other child may say nothing lest the bully turns on them with hostility. In many cases, it's safer just to let a bully have what he wants. Adults, on the other hand, respect boundaries. Yours is yours and mine is mine. Number eight, budding narcissism. In an earlier post, in an earlier post I coined the term tall man syndrome for one way that narcissism can develop. If children or adults can get whatever they want because they are bigger, stronger, or richer, they become a risk at they become at risk of learning that the rules don't apply to them. Whatever they want, they take. This narcissistic tendency may initially look like strength, but in reality, it reflects a serious weakness. Being able being unable to see beyond the self. Psychologically strong people listen to others, hoping to understand others' feelings, concerns, and preferences. Narcissists hear only themselves and are emotionally brittle as a result. They operate like children who want to stay out and play, even though dinner is on the table, and who pitch a fit rather than heed their parents' explanation that the family is eating now. Their mindset, in short, is, it's all about me. In the eyes of a narcissist, no one else counts. If they don't get their way, they may result to pouting or bullying in order to do so. Number nine, immature defenses. Freud coined the term defense mechanisms for ways in which individuals protect themselves and or get what they want. Adults use defense mechanisms like listening to others' concerns as well as to their own. They then engage in collaborative problem solving. These responses to difficulties signal psychological maturity. Children tend to regard the best defense as a strong offense. While that defensive strategy may work in football, attacking anyone who expresses a viewpoint different from what they want is, in life, a primitive defense mechanism. Another primitive defense is denial. I didn't say that or I never did that when in fact they did say or do the thing they claim not to have done. Sound childlike to you? Number 10. No observing ego. That is, no ability to see, acknowledge, and learn from their mistakes. When emotionally mature adults lose their cool and express angry, and, and wait a minute, 
When emotionally mature adults lose their cool and express anger inappropriately, they soon after, with their observing ego, realize that their outburst was inappropriate. That is, that is, they can see with hindsight that their behavior was out of line with their value system. They can see if their outburst has been, as therapists say, ego dystonic against their value system. Or it might be ego dystonic. Anyways, against their value system. Children who, <clears throat> excuse me, children who have not yet internalized mature guidelines of respectful behavior towards others or who have not developed ability to observe their behaviors to judge what's in line and what's out of line see their anger as normal. They regard their emotional outbursts as egocentric, that is, perfectly fine justifying them by blaming the other person. In other words, I only did it because you made me. If you or someone you know functions more like a child than like a grown-up, what are your options? It's easy to love children who act like children. It's harder to love someone who acts like a child in the body of a grown-up. Still, most childlike adults only act childish when they feel under threat. Therefore, if you love someone who has childish sides, one strategy is to focus primarily on the more adult and attractive aspects of the person. If you are the childlike one, love your strengths and pay attention to growing in your less mature habit areas. Another strategy is to cease being surprised when the childish patterns emerge. Thinking, I can't believe that he or she did or I did that, signifies that you have not yet accepted the reality of the childlike behaviors. Accepting that the behaviors do occur is a first and vital step toward change. Third, if you are the receiver of childish behaviors, beware of trying to change the other person. <clears throat> Instead, figure out what you can do differently so those patterns will no longer, be, no longer be problematic for you. Your job is to keep growing yourself, not to change others. Lastly, Learn the skills of adult functioning. Much of, of what grown-up children do can be considered as a skills deficit. If you tend to be childish, learning adult skills can move you into grown-upville. My book and workbook called The Power of Two should help as well. And... If you generally function as a grown-up, the more clear you are about what constitutes grown-up behavior, the more you will be able to stay a grown-up, even when you are interacting with someone who is acting like a child. Now, that's copyright Susan Heitler, PhD, on psychologytoday.com. Thank you for your article, Can You Spot 10 signs of a childish adult. All right. And we will be right back with yet another article on today's episode of Just Miss Rose and You. I love you for listening. We'll be right back. my lovely loyal listeners. We are now on the website venazine.com and this article is titled, Is Your Friend Mean or Are You Just Too Sensitive? It was written by Jessica Hansen on July 13, 2017. 
three signs that indicate you're not too sensitive. They're just mean. I'm sure we can all think of someone who often says things that can come across as mean or offensive, even if they are not meant to. However, some people do mean it, and that can be pretty tricky to decipher. Is it your own sensitivity, or are they truly intending to upset you? Here are a few signs to look out for to help you decide for yourself. How do they respond? When confronted about their apparent negativity, someone who is a true friend will not dismiss your feelings. They won't tell you that you're silly or that they were just joking. Even if this is how they feel privately, if they truly care about you, they will acknowledge the hurt they, have, they may have caused, accidentally or not, apologizing for whatever they said or did. It keeps happening. If you have told your friend that their behavior upsets you, or you have visibly appeared upset by their treatment of you or others, but they carry on without proper acknowledgement or attempts towards change, they are probably doing it deliberately. The definition of mean is when someone deliberately hurts another, emotionally or physically. So maybe it's time to let that meanie go. Turning others against you those bitches. Unless it's an inside joke between you and all of your venas, no one should be talking shit behind your back. Continually gossip, I mean, continual gossip and drama together can be one hell of a weapon. They can cause character assassinations and life-threatening insecurities. Every one of us should be, every one of us should now, should, oh my goodness, Rose. Every one of us should know by now that we are to treat people the way that we want to be treated. So if you don't want your Venus slandering you on the daily, don't do it. And also get rid of the bops who would do it to you. Obviously, we all get annoyed with our friends sometimes, and we need to be able to talk to others about our thoughts and feelings. However, if you consistently hear that your friend has been saying truly mean things about you, not just little annoyances, ditch them. If you are still unsure whether your specific vena falls into these categories, Talk it over with someone else who really knows you. A family member or trusted friend is ideal. Someone who knows both of you is even better. These people will know your personality and know if you are responding in a way that is overly sensitive or if your response seems appropriate to the situation. It is helpful in all walks of life to have a second opinion. Someone who may be able to look at the situation in a more calm and emotionless way than you may be capable of. Friends are supposed to tell you what's what, especially when you're being sensitive. But overall, your venas need to be supportive. They tell you what you need to hear in the best possible way, and they always take your feelings into consideration. Sensitivity is not something to be ashamed of. We all respond differently in the way we respond in any given situation. Hopefully, if your friend is being just a little impolite, uncivil, discourteous, you can probably sort it out. Best wishes. If you can't sort things out, put your emotional health first 
and find a new BFF. Download the Hey Vina app to find a better friend. <laughs> and that is the conclusion on that article, you guys. Venazine.com. Is your friend mean or are you just too sensitive? And that was written by Jessica Hansen. And we'll be back with one more article and the conclusion of today's episode of Just Miss Rose and You. Did I tell you I love you for listening? I love you for listening. We'll be right back. my lovely loyal listeners for our last article today Sunday the last Sunday of November 2022 November 27th we are going to be on verywellmind.com and this article is titled apologizing sincerely and effectively apologizing can be intimidating but it is the first step to rebuilding trust It was written by Elizabeth Scott, Ph.D., updated on September 8th, 2022, medically reviewed by Amy Morin, LCSW. Relationships can be wonderful buffers against stress, but relationship conflicts can also cause considerable emotional pain and stress. Knowing how to apologize and when can repair damage in a relationship. But if you don't know how to apologize sincerely, you can actually make things worse. A sincere and effective apology is one that communicates genuine empathy, remorse, and regret, as well as a promise to learn from your mistakes. In other words, You need to really believe you did something wrong and feel sorry for the hurt you caused. Here are some easy steps to help you learn how to apologize sincerely and effectively. Recognize the reasons to apologize. When you've made a mistake or hurt another person, there are many good reasons to apologize. By apologizing, you are able to acknowledge that you were wrong. Discuss what is allowed and not allowed in your relationship. Express your regret and remorse. Learn from your mistakes and find new ways of dealing with difficult situations. Open up a line of communication with the other person. A sincere apology can also bring relief, particularly if you have guilt over your actions. An apology alone doesn't erase the hurt or make it okay, but it does establish that you know your actions or words were wrong and that you will strive harder in the future to prevent it from happening again. Not apologizing when you are wrong can be damaging to your personal and professional relationships. It can also lead to rumination, anger, resentment, and hostility that may only grow over time. Research suggests that some of the major reasons why people don't apologize are that they aren't really concerned about the other person. Apologizing threatens their own self-image or they believe that an apology won't do any good anyway. Know when to apologize. Knowing when to apologize is is as important as knowing how to apologize. 
generally speaking, if you suspect that something you did on purpose or by accident caused someone else hard feelings, it's a good idea to apologize and clear the air. If what you did would have bothered you if it was done to you, an apology is in order. If you're not sure an apology, if you're not sure, an apology not only offers you the chance to own the mistakes you made, but reestablish what you think was okay. If you feel the other person is being unreasonable, a discussion may be in order. You can decide where you stand on the apology after that. While a sincere apology can go a long way towards mending a relationship, people are often unwilling or unable to take this step. Admitting you were wrong can be difficult and humbling. Researchers have found that people who believe their personality is changeable are more likely to apologize for harmful actions because they feel that change is possible. They feel that accepting the blame for their mistake is an opportunity for learning and growth. Take responsibility. Taking responsibility means acknowledging mistakes you made that hurt the other person. And it's one of the most important and neglected ingredients of most apologies, especially those in the media. (laughs) You guys, my phone is dying. And I have got to plug her up before I can continue because I do not want her to cut off midstream while I'm recording. And I've already learned from experience that this phone, if you let the battery start dying while you're recording, it will die mid-record. Anyway, take responsibility. Taking responsibility means acknowledging mistakes you made that hurt the other person. And it's one of the most important and neglected ingredients of most apologies, especially those in the media. Saying something vague like, I'm sorry if you were offended by something I said, implies that the hurt feelings were a random reaction on the part of the other person. Saying, when I said the hurtful thing, I wasn't thinking. I realize I hurt your feelings, and I'm sorry. Acknowledges, excuse me, acknowledges that you know what it, what it was you said that hurt the other person, and you take responsibility for it. Don't make assumptions, and don't try to shift the blame. Make it clear that you regret your actions and that you are sincerely sorry. Express regret. When learning how to apologize effectively, it's important to understand the value of expressing regret. Taking responsibility is important, but it's also helpful for the other person to know that you feel bad about hurting them and wish you hadn't. That's it. They already feel bad, and they'd like to know that you feel bad about them feeling bad. What to say when you want to apologize? I wish I could take it back. I wish I had been more thoughtful. I wish I'd thought of your feelings as well. These are all expressions of regret that add to the sincerity of your apology and let the other person know you care. Make amends. Make amends. If there's anything you can do to amend the situation, do it. 
it's important to know how to apologize with sincerity. And part of that sincerity is a willingness to act. What to say when you make amends? If you broke something, how can I replace it? If you said something hurtful, I know my words hurt you. I should have never spoken that way to someone I love and respect. I'll do my best to think before I speak in the future. If you broke trust, is there anything I can do right now to help build your trust? Whatever you can do to make things better, do it. If you're not sure what would help, ask the other person. Reaffirm boundaries. One of the most important parts of an apology and one of the best reasons to apologize is to reaffirm boundaries. Healthy boundaries are important in any relationship. When you come into conflict with someone, often a boundary is crossed. If a social rule is violated or trust is broken, an apology helps to affirm what kind of future behavior is preferred. Discussing what types of rules you both will adhere to in the future will will rebuild trust, boundaries, and positive feelings. It provides a natural segue out of the conflict and into a happier future in the relationship. For example, you and your partner, friend, or family member can discuss things you won't tolerate including disrespect, cheating, lying, gaslighting, mistrust, shouting. In addition, you can work together to set expectations about how you should treat each other emotionally, physically, and sexually. If you're having trouble agreeing on these boundaries, you and your loved one may benefit from seeing a family therapist or couples counselor. Own up to your part, not theirs. Remember that when you apologize, you're taking responsibility for your part of the conflict. That doesn't mean that you're admitting that the entire conflict was your fault. People are often afraid to apologize first because they think whoever apologizes first is more wrong or the loser of the conflict. Giving an apology, even when only a small part of the conflict was your responsibility, is okay and often healthy. It allows you to establish what you regret about your own actions, but confirms your own boundaries as well. It's important to be fair in your apology, both to the other person and to yourself. Don't accept all the blame if it isn't all your fault. Apologize for the right reasons. When you apologize for just what you did, you can more easily move forward and put the conflict behind you, regardless of the other person's actions. When we apologize, we're able to more easily maintain our integrity and forgive ourselves. The other person may be moved to apologize for their actions as well. While getting an apology is often nice, it's important to remember that this doesn't always happen. Trying to invoke, trying to evoke an apology from the other person is a manipulative tactic that sometimes backfires. Apologize for your own peace of mind and the other person may be inspired to do the same. But be sure not to apologize just because you expect an apology in return. Let go of results to an extent. Although apologizing can be a way to maintain integrity and move on from actions we're not proud of, most of us also want to repair the relationship and be forgiven. Sometimes this doesn't happen. 
if the poly, if the apology was sincere and included the necessary ingredients, your your chances of forgiveness are greater. But sometimes the other person just isn't ready or able to forgive and move on. Or they may forgive you but remain guarded. Or they may not realize their own role in the conflict. You can't control their response. And if you've done everything you can, let it go for now. Please press play for advice on making an apology. Hosted by Editor-in-Chief and Therapist Amy Morin, LCSW, this episode of the Very Well Mind podcast shares ways to apologize effectively and sincerely. And then she does have a podcast here, you guys. Uh, a science-backed strategy for making an apology effective, which I'm not going to press because guess what? That's the end of today's episode. And we want to thank, oh no, that that, uh, podcast is by Amy Morin, you guys. But we want to thank Very Well Mind for Elizabeth Scott, PhD's article, Apologizing Sincerely and Effectively. Apologizing can be intimidating, but it is the first step to rebuilding trust. And if you've done anything that you need to apologize for, be brave and apologize. And if I've done anything to offend anybody, I apologize. And on that note, I want to thank you, my lovely loyal listeners, for your time today. And you know the rules. Don't let anybody take you off your square because you are the only you in the entire universe and nobody is doing a better job of being you than you. And don't let them tell you otherwise. Please support my sister podcast as the Massage Table Turns, which can be heard on Mondays, Wednesdays, or which is recorded on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays most of the time. (laughs) And we will talk with you next Sunday. And it'll be December then, you guys. So as the Lord is willing for me to make, or the creator is willing for me to make it to next Sunday, I will talk with you next Sunday on Just Miss Rose and You. Did I tell you I love you for listening? I love you for listening. Now get out there and have a great week. Bye. Miss Rose out. Oh, thank you.